I want to tell you about a great podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression. In each episode, John Mo sits down with some of the top names in entertainment and talks to them about their experiences with mental health in an honest and surprisingly funny way. I was just on the show last week, cried, talking about my dad, talked about how weird it was, the uh, aftermath of career suicide. Past guests have also included Peter Sagal, Andy Richter, Andrew Zimmern. It's funny. It's moving. It's honest. You should definitely give it a listen. Find the hilarious world of depression wherever you listen to podcasts. Adult Swim's workplace dream clinic comedy, Dream Corp, LLC, is back for a second season. John Grise is Dr. Roberts. And with the help of Nick Rutherford, Mark Pruksh, Megan Ferguson, plus his robot Terry, played by the great Stephen Merchant, Dr. Roberts will enter your dreams, locate your problems, and rewire them. Maybe... Who knows? No promises. Watch the new season of Dream Corp LLC, October 21st at midnight on Adult Swim. Hello, everybody. This is Chris Gethard. And uh, as you can hear, I am not in a studio. You may hear a screaming child about 20 feet away from me. I'm actually in a, a park. I'm in Regent's Park in the middle of London, England. I'd rather go one-on-one I think it'll be more fun And I'll get to know you And you'll get to know me Hey everybody, it's Chris Gethard. Welcome to Beautiful Anonymous. My book is out today, the 16th of October, 2018. And guess what? This Friday, we're going to give you some bonus content. Actually going to put out a chapter from my audiobook. Excerpt of the book, Lose Well. I'm going to give you a free sample chapter in the audiobook it's going to be in your feed on friday and i'm going on tour to support the book I'm doing some comedy in brooklyn i'm going to be doing chicago ideas week we're doing both a bookstore signing and a show in boston same thing in la including one of those la shows is a live beautiful anonymous taping and i'm doing some signings and shows in san francisco and portland as well so go check out chrisgeth.com if you live in any of those cities i'd love to meet you and have an awkward in-person conversation Much like the one I had on this episode you're about to hear. You guys might remember a few months back, we had an episode, we set up some microphones in Madison Square Park in New York City. We uh, talked to a young lady who grew up in Cuba and now she travels the world looking for love, going on adventures. A lot of people liked that episode. We figured, let's do it again. And me and and Jared, we've been traveling so much, we figured, let's go to different cities and do it. So when we were in London a few weeks back at the London Podcast Festival, we went to Regent's Park, big giant park in the middle of London, sat down. Guy walked up. I liked him immediately. He had on a Marvel Comics tote bag. And everybody knows I like Marvel Comics. I was even in the Wolverine podcast. I had three lines as a librarian. Check it out now, by the way. It's no longer behind the paywall. Go check out Wolverine the Long Night. And we sat. We talked about what it's like being a little bit more on your own than you want to be. About what it was like growing up on a goat farm and figuring out who you are. I really enjoyed the conversation. I thank our our non-caller for having it. And I hope you like it, too. All right. Should I start doing my rambling intro while we wait for him? He's going to have to sit with me and hear the sounds of this park together. I think this park is known for angry swans, which I don't know if that's a well-known thing that many people say or if it just means that at some point my wife was attacked by a swan in this park when she studied abroad here. So... That's what we're dealing with. Everyone who walks by is 
visibly a little uncertain about what we're doing and slightly uncomfortable about it, but unwilling to say anything. In traditional English fashion, they will make it clear that there's some level of discomfort, but not ask any questions about what we're doing or express the specifics of their discomfort. Just looks and nods and slight smiles that let me know that they are confused and slightly uncomfortable with what we're doing. Everyone will, I think there's someone walking up right now who is the person. He's just waved. Oh, he's holding a Marvel Comics tote bag. So already I know that this person and I will be friends because DC Comics are bullshit. I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, Hi, how are you? Hey, yeah. Can, can you hear me okay? Is the sound all right? I, I can hear you. I, I know we're you can, here. Yeah. Jared can hear. Jared's giving a thumbs up. I'm starting the timer now. Lovely. So we'll be having an hour together here in Regent's Park. It is beautiful today. It is. Now, is this a popular place for, for Londoners to come hang out? It is, yeah. It's kind of a little more classy than like Hyde Park or some of the bigger parks. It's still pretty huge, but as you can see from all the fancy gardens and stuff, it's a bit yeah. more for like families and stuff you don't get as many like rowdy teens and things oh, Hyde Park is known for rowdy teens kind of yeah they have a lot of, they have some big music concerts there uh-huh. whereas here it has like an open air theatre which I think has Little Shop of Horrors on at the moment oh okay and it's a little more like upmarket yes which I think is due to the area because well, London is very spaced out in terms of its class areas I'm very glad that we avoided the rowdy teens oh. I don't do well with rowdy teens <laughs> me neither believe me before you sat down, I was just saying into the microphone that I'm, I was admiring your Marvel Comics tote bag. Yes. Makes yeah. me feel like we have some things in common. Absolutely. I was dressing for the occasion. Um, I've also worn the thickest sweater I own on a boiling hot day, so I'm quite sweaty now. It is. I've, I've worn a corduroy jacket. It's, it's, it's one of these weird days where when you're in the sun, it's unbearable, and then as soon as you get in the shade, it's a little too cold. Absolutely, yeah. I was on, I was on a bus for like two and a half hours to get here. Two and a half yeah. hours? Why did you do that? Uh, well, because I'm coming in for the for the podcast festival. Oh, you are. So it's not just for this. No, no. Okay, no. <laughs> I won't feel guilty. That's good. I'm also helping a friend move, so I was like, I'll come and do both. And yeah, on the bus this morning, baking hot heat, mm-hmm. f- horrible to deal with. But I'm here now, and yeah, we're getting a nice breeze just as we're talking. So yeah, I feel like the sun is maybe covering up just for us, which is very nice. Absolutely. And so two and a half hours away, where do you where do you live? Um, I live in a place called Poole, which is near Bournemouth, which is a little seaside town. You can get your ferry to France. It takes about an hour. Oh, wow. So it's right on the coastline. You just nip, nip, nip across the border, and then you're in France. Can you so see France? You can't. It's not that close, I'm afraid. Okay. Although okay. maybe. Maybe if you, it may be on a nice day, you can see France. But um, no, I lived here for like four or five months, but it, it was too stressful. And um, I had a job here, which I then lost. Yeah. And then I had to, so I couldn't afford to live here. I could barely afford to live here with a fairly decent paying job. Yeah. So when I lost that, I was like, I have to move out immediately. I left like two days after I lost my job. So. It is one of the most expensive cities in the world, I believe, right? Oh, yeah. I think more expensive than New York even. Shockingly, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't really justify it in a lot of ways. Like, the theater scene is beautiful. The mu- like, there's a lot of cultural stuff to do. But, like, just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of aggression. And there's a lot of, like hostility that makes it not a great place to live in general uh-huh but uh-huh. It, it looks beautiful it's a beautiful tourist place <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> i'm glad to hear that it looks beautiful but quietly riddled with crime and aggression a little that's bit. your review of london absolutely okay. okay and from what i've heard that's a similar thing with new york from my stereotypes well it's interesting because new york's also in a, a very interesting transitional phase i would say right now where you know it is it is full of uh like you said 
beautiful theater and music, mm-hmm. a lot of cultural stuff. I also think from my perspective as an artist, I think some of the uh, some of the art spaces and the cultural spaces that were a little bit more homegrown and grown by artists, mm-hmm. they're all being closed down. Right. The city squeezing them out a little bit. Yeah. I think in Manhattan it's it's a little bit hard to find where like you don't really go to too many there's not so many punk rock shows in Manhattan anymore and even in Brooklyn it's starting to feel a little bit like less and less places to go find those things that are right. that feel a little more like authentic and sort of like by the artist so yeah it's a whole gentrification yeah. stuff isn't it yeah. so I think a similar thing of but I, I will say I think uh, as far as crime and aggression go there's less of that in New York than I've ever seen really when I grew up in New Jersey you'd come into New York and it would be a visibly dangerous place Absolutely. Times Square was a visibly it's funny if you've seen the movie Big yes that vision of Times Square is the Times Square I grew up with. Wow. And now it's basically like an extension of Disney World. Oh, it's where right. you can go see the Lion King and there's the M&M store. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, every New Yorker I know kind of actively avoids walking there because it's nothing but tourists, which I think London has areas like that as well. Absolutely. Um, so it's actually, I think, a, a less crime-riddled, hmm. aggressive I'll, place. I'll tell you where it's even worse for tourists. You were up in Edinburgh a few years ago, right? I was for the festival. Yeah, that is the worst for tourists in really terms, just because especially anywhere that's sort of associated with harry potter uh, you physically cannot move for people yes because it's not a city that's built for tourists it's very old-fashioned there's lots of little streets yes and, and there's alleys just, and staircases absolutely and, yeah and it's beautiful it's my favorite city in the world but you can't go in the summer because there's just tourists everywhere vaguely associated with jk rowling yeah that and, makes um, sense i was shocked when i went there when i i, I spent the month of August in Edinburgh, 2016, mm-hmm. and it made me realize that by by the standards of the rest of the entire world, America just fell out of the sky yesterday. Absolutely, it's brand new. When people visit America and they come from Europe, mm-hmm. they mu- it must just look like a mini mall that was set up eight days ago. Absolutely, it, it baffles me that like your history starts about 300 years ago. Yeah which it just seems so strange to me when like we have buildings from about 600 700 years ago just around just and and that have had a pub that's been open every night for 600 years absolutely it's very confusing to have such recent history yeah when i was in edinburgh i joined a gym and was told that the building the building my gym was in it was in the basement Mm -hmm. the building was 1500 years old (laughs) and that was just where i joined a gym right and meanwhile my country is just a few hundred years old. Exactly. A gym has literally been around longer than America. Like five times longer than America. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't a gym the whole time. No, that would be strange. It would but, be very strange. Yeah. Um, we've got a pigeon flying by. I think people Excellent. jogging by with a dog. It's very idyllic, isn't it? I, I was saying this does strike me as quintessentially British as far as a place to sit and talk. There's rose gardens and water... Absolutely. Yeah, you, uh, your, your team were asking for a potential location for this. And I was racking my brain to come up with somewhere where there wouldn't be anyone yelling. And I'm really lucky that we found this fantastic spot. Yeah, we figured it out quite nicely. Absolutely. Quite nicely. So what, what should I know about you? What's, um, what's your deal, as they say? Well, I, I didn't want to prepare too much for this. I found out about it a little bit ago and I was like, I don't want to... So I was just sort of thinking about some things that strongly emotionally affected me recently. Okay. And one thing that I do want to talk about is, um, so I designed a website recently. This is, gonna, this, this is going somewhere. I'm not okay. just bragging about a website I designed. But I designed a website recently um, for a university society. And then 
I started a relationship with a girl who was in the society. And then I left the society and she got my job of designing the website. So yesterday I checked the website and she had changed the entire thing. This thing that I'd spent like three months doing. Are you still seeing the girl? No, no, that's, yeah, we, we broke up. Um, and it was it was totally my fault. It was because I, I, I was a bad person, basically. Okay. And so it was my fault. So I accept the blame for that. But then it was just seeing the whole thing that I put in like months of work into just completely changed. I was like, wow, I deserve this. And yet it still feels bad because it's a very a visual, it's a visual representation of like, justice in a way and do you think there is some element of revenge on her part see is this what you're assuming in your heart the narcissistic part of me says it's definitely 100% fueled by not by revenge not because she just got this job that allowed you to do this thing I'm sure if I'm thinking honestly she probably just wants to put her stamp on the society in the same way that I did of course but the very narcissistic bad part of my brain goes she's actively trying to get back at me through the medium of a website. Right. Although, to be honest, if you did want to get back at someone, there's probably better ways. I would have to imagine. Although, to a web designer, yeah. is there any better way? It Absolutely. Is, it is sort of a strange 2018 digital version of she got to keep the house and threw out all your posters. Exactly. And put up her own art. It is like driving by the house and there's just boxes of my stuff outside. Now, how recent was this breakup? The breakup was around six months ago. Um, but we, we were going out for a good... It wasn't a huge relationship. I would say it was yeah. about four months of relationship. And, and then we broke up. Can I just ask, and I, I don't want to put the screws to you, but when you say you're a bad person, is this were you, were you uh, fooling around on the side? Was it a lack of emotional commitment? What, what? Um, no, I don't think it was anything like that. I think the main thing was I was 25 and she was 20. Okay. And I was kind of unreceptive to the fact... Like, if I was in a relationship with myself at 20, I would not have been able to deal with that. Yeah. Like, so dealing with her when she was 20, I didn't really put in the work that's required to be in a relationship with a younger person like that. Right. So I was expecting a lot more emotional maturity from her than I probably should have done. Right. So when I was, when I was dealing with difficult stuff and she wasn't dealing with it in a good way, I, I wasn't very positive with her and I wasn't very understanding of her. Forgetting the fact that she was 20 years old, like she shouldn't have had dealt with that or shouldn't have had to deal with that kind of right. stuff. So in the moment when I broke up with her, it was far in a very negative way and it was very like, you don't understand me way. But then, since then, I've felt very guilty about that because it wasn't really her place. You just do a little more soul searching and you realize this, was, this had some fundamental flaws. Exactly. That we're not going to, I tell you, I once, uh, I briefly dated someone who was 10 years younger than me. Right. And uh, it was a similar thing. I think in my, in my heart, I just felt, I knew like, man, 10 years is just, that's like a whole, there's like a whole generational shift in there. Like there's Absolutely. like, like I grew up and had, like I grew up without the internet. Like yeah. the internet started when I was in junior high school. Like there's certain, but I look back and she was actually like one of the coolest people I ever dated. And I'm like, man, I messed that up. I messed that <laughs> exactly. up bad. I just couldn't get out of my own way. I always had it in the back of my mind that she was so much younger. Yeah. And then you, everything about the breakup was driven by my inability to just communicate that clearly while she was like, do you want to do this or not? And me being like, uh, I don't know. Absolutely. And do you feel like the you from 10 years younger would have gotten on well with her? I was, it, it's funny, her at the age she was, mm -hmm. she was so much more mature and advanced than I was at that age. Right. And I think I just found that hard to believe. Right. Like, I think it was... I was like, nah, there's just no way around the fact that she's just not this much younger because I knew who I was then. But I'm like, I was just so much more of a screw up. And right. 
didn't have it together mm. that I'm like in some weird way not trusting myself at her age instead of giving her a chance. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to accept that like other people have different emotional developments. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I had the opposite problem where two well four of my best friends are two relationships of the exact same age gap of 5 years. Yeah. So two 26-year-olds and two 21-year-olds. And I had assumed, oh well that makes that fine. That makes right. that means that every relationship of that age gap works. But it, it just doesn't because different people have different emotional maturities. Yeah. It just makes that hard, you know? You are making me think about how every relationship I've ever been in that, I, that failed, failed, outside of one that I can think of, failed largely because of how hard I overthink things right. and how hard I 100%. dwell on things. Yeah. But no, it's, it's one of those things where you do have to you do have to make the leap of emotional maturity and kind of put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking, this is literally a realization I'm having now. Like, she was really obsessed with, you know, the film Call Me By Your Name. Which one is that? I know I've seen that. That's, that's the one where it's Timothy Chalamet and it's Army Hammer and they're having the relationship in Italy or maybe France. Oh, I did not see that. Right, yeah. Was, I wanted to see that. It was a really big, really romantic film. And she I was, plan on watching that. It's, it is fantastic. But she was absolutely obsessed with it in a way that I deemed as, like, childish and immature. Right. But really, it's because she was 20 years old and you get obsessed with movies when you're 20 years old. That's true, when isn't you're, it? Yeah, when you're 25, you don't. When you're 25, you see a film, you like it, and then you go to your work the next day. Yeah. So I judged her for that, not outwardly, but inwardly. And judged only... her for having like a youthful love of life and things she was discovering. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's not the best. <laughs> at the time, I was completely feeling like this was justified. And then like two or three months later, I was, because I still had to see her like regularly because we were doing a lot of like theatre stuff together. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I was the bad guy in this situation. I was entirely like the too judgmental, the too like... Right. basically too big for my boots holding it of. against her that she could feel unironic joy exactly yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is not a great realization to have and it's kind of something yeah. you cannot take back yeah and, you know. I um, get it I've been there I've had similar I have I have I have messed up other people's heads and hearts in similar ways absolutely and yeah you just kind of have to hope you can approach the next thing from a place of like greater depth yeah and I suppose the worst thing is when you do that and then you make the same mistake again, which I haven't yet. That's good. Time, time is time is just around the corner. That is you know? good. At the very least, when it comes to dating, you can try to make other disastrous mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Instead of the same disastrous mistakes. Yeah. That represents growth of some sort, I yeah. think. Yeah, because I guess you do only have to get it right once. I mean, when yeah. you do get it right, you do have to do it for a very long time. I mean, theoretically, <laughs> that's the romantic vision of it. Although yeah. many people prove that you can get it right a couple times. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess we're ignoring the fact that sometimes it is the other person's fault. Like, sometimes you can... Like, I've not had this experience, but yeah. I'm assuming you can hypothetically get everything right and then they can do something wrong. And then that isn't disrupt... You've done the you perfect can, relationship. You can hold your, your head up high and feel like you did it the right way. I guess that's true. But then, you know, because I have been on both ends, I think. There's been far more that my own... Uh, anxieties and neuroticism and depression issues have ruined far more. There's been a couple that I would say are the other person's fault. And uh, I think at the end of the day, too, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. When I, when, I, when I met my wife, I realized very quickly that I was at least going to try to marry her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just to put it bluntly, like, she's not fucked up in any of the ways that I know don't work for me. Like, Absolutely. That's, that's pretty great. See, that's interesting. Oh, we have a duck. <laughs> I wonder if they can hear the duck. It's a beautiful it's honk. honking duck. Yeah, that's good ambient noise here. Absolutely. In London, that's great. Uh, see, that's an interesting thing, though, because do you think that having those red flags could potentially barricade you from meeting someone? Obviously, you didn't have this problem, but 
if one were to have these red flags, could they become a problem when you're when you meet someone that is otherwise perfect, but they t- take this arbitrary red flag, yeah. and then you're like, oh, I guess I can't date them. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's when you become a little too, you know, laser focused on the red flags themselves, and you're not giving someone a chance. It's a very tricky balance. It becomes a very tough balance. Yeah, very tough balance. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, now I've moved to somewhere a lot smaller, and I am. I just like there's no one my age. It's all old people or very young people. Oh wow! So um, I'm working for like an orchestra, which is a very nice place to work, but it's not like the youngest, coolest clientele. Yeah. Like so, I'm finding it difficult to meet new people just because of the area in which I'm living in. Did you grow up in Poole? No, I actually grew up up on a little goat farm up in the Highlands of Scotland. A goat farm in Scotland. Yes. um, What a great thing to say. (laughs) What a great sentence to say. Yeah, just... um, So I grew up there until I was about sort of 17 and I moved to Edinburgh University. And um, so I I got very used to living in a very remote place with just me and my mom and some goats. And goats? Yes. Just your mom and some goats? Yeah, so she looked after them and she had a small business making soap out of their milk. Uh, yeah, she passed away from breast cancer a few years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. But yeah, she ran this entire farm of around, I want to say between 15 and 20 goats, milked the goats, turned their milk into soap, sold the soap, all by herself. Now, I, I will tell you, I have had some experience with goats and do have a strange affinity for goats. They're beautiful creatures. I think they're one of the more honest creatures that I've ever met as well. When I was in college, I went to a state university in New Jersey and which is not known people don't realize New Jersey is known I think for being sort of like an industrial wasteland that's its reputation worldwide but it's uh, it's got a lot of very beautiful rural stretches and at Rutgers University one of the campuses is called Cook College it's an agricultural university my senior year I signed up for a course a one credit course that was called Animal Husbandry and Exhibition where you (laughs) and I raised a goat there was a goat and I was responsible for tending to the goat throughout the semester Mm -hmm. and then at the end of the show we entered in the states we call it like 4-H like these farm competition shows I don't know what the name would be in other areas but Mm -hmm. it's basically you groom your goat and you walk around with your goat in a circle and then the judges judge the almost like the the Westminster Dog Show but for goats on a a very small college level (laughs) I had a goat. I named it Jeffrey Timmons, the world's foremost goat. This oh. was before I realized you could only pick female goats, but I stuck with the name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was a- 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 amazed at how the goat actually took a liking to me, and we were able to develop an emotional bond. See, this they, they do seem very empathetic, but they have the big eyes that when they stare at you, they do look a little bit scary. They do. They yeah. have big, scary eyes. But if you feed them sweet things, they will remember you and take to you. Although Absolutely. they will also sometimes lock eyes with you mm-hmm. and then just violently shit. <laughs> and when goats shit, it is a remarkable tidal wave of right. pellets that come out. I don't have that memory myself. Wow. So it might, just that one been, out. might have been your goat, though. That's fair. Maybe mine just had some intestinal issues and matched me in that way. Absolutely. It's, I also will say, too, before the show, I had, to, I had to shave the goat to get it ready. And that it didn't love that. But I also had to tip... I had to um, clip the goat's toenails. Yes. Yeah, and that was of... a horror show. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever had to do was to clip a goat's toenails. Mm. I think one of the most masculine things you can see is someone wrestling a sheep or a goat in order to shave it because they will run around like crazy. Yeah. And you've got to get a very burly man to like wrestle them. And that always, I, am, I could never approach that level of masculinity, you know. Yeah, I remember I had to bathe Jeffrey Timmons and that involved, <laughs> I had to tie her to a post 
mm-hmm. and then rub her down with shampoo. And she right. realized at that point what was happening. And then I blast her with the cold water. And I really, if she could have gotten loose at that point, she would have murdered me. She would have attacked me. Yeah, they don't, they don't understand what you're doing. They just think you're like trying to drown them or dunk yeah. them. I'm like, I'm trying to help you out, goat. Yeah. You, smell, you smell funny and you look shaggy. I'm trying to get you all ready for this big... Uh, competitive goat show it's the same thing about bridging emotional connection but instead of between ages it's between species it is it's a lot it's more very difficult. true yeah. it's also it, it, i feel like it must be so interesting to grow up because from what i could gather everything with goats was alpha dynamics at all times mm-hmm. it's who's who's the head of the food chain here absolutely who gets first dibs at the food and who gets physically beaten up and told no you go to the back of the line absolutely yes does that affect you at all growing up does that affect <laughs> your human relationships We're going to pause there. After all these episodes, I finally get to ask the question I want to ask. How does growing up with goats affect your human relationships? We've got ads. Check them out. Use the promo codes if you like. We'll be back with more conversation right after this. For a lot of people, when does the day really start? Does it start when you wake up? No. It starts when you have your morning energy boost. It starts when you have your coffee. And now there's a new way to enjoy coffee, thanks to Cafe Monster. Available in vanilla, mocha, and salted caramel, Cafe Monster's shaking up the ready-to-drink coffee category because they got indulgent gourmet coffee. It's only 190 calories, okay? And within those calories, you also got 150 milligrams of caffeine, baby. That's what you want. You want that kick. You need that cafe kick. You got coffee beans in there, B vitamins, coffee fruit extract, Cafe Monster offers a simplified energy blend that contains a third less sugar than the leading national brand. Okay? And it's 100 fewer calories than the competition. Keep that in mind. Get all the same feel and flavor as your local coffee house, and you don't even have to wait in those lines. I have some Cafe Monster sitting in my fridge right now because I like it. It's a quick grab and go on your way out the door. Get that kick. Wake you wide up, man. Cafe Monster. Chill it down. Shake it up. Enjoy. Stitch Fix, it's an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. They, uh, they worked with my wife. My wife used Stitch Fix. She found the experience very pleasant. It was very communicative, picked up stuff that fit her style, her body type. It was all very uh, laid back and fun, and, and uh, she had a good time with it. They were very above board. It's cool. Stitch Fix can help you find your new favorite piece of clothing. Just go to stitchfix.com slash stories. Tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist. We'll handpick five items to send right to your door. Then try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied towards anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com stories. You'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix, S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com slash stories to get started today. Stitchfix.com stories. Thanks to all of our advertisers. Now let's get back to the conversation. From what I could gather, everything with goats was alpha dynamics at all times. Mm-hmm. It's who's the, who's the head of the food chain here. Absolutely. Who gets first dibs at the food and who gets physically beaten up and told, no, you go to the back of the line. Absolutely, yes. Does that affect you at all growing up? Does that affect <laughs> your human relationships? Um, well, 
from growing up in a sort of very farming-based community, it was a very masculine, very... I don't want to say uncultured because that sounds like an insult, which it isn't intended to be, but it was a very farming-focused community where everyone was very alpha-focused and physical labour was very much the only thing that people did. Yeah. It was very much like the hobby that a lot of people had was farming. Right. And that was very difficult for me to get used to because I was technically born in London. My parents took me to like the opera and the ballet and right, stuff. Right, and right. then they took me to this goat farm community and I had to deal with this sudden very kind of, like you say, alpha dynamics, which I wasn't very good at adjusting to because my response to it was basically to retreat into a kind of introspective, nerdy, emo. I listen to a lot of Fallout Boy, lots of Panic! Right. Disco first. You're carrying album. a Marvel Comics tote bag. I, literally right now, yes. Right. I'm wearing brogues on a Saturday. Like, I am not a very masculine person. You're not so. looking to get knee-deep in the mud and, like, feed the pigs the slop. No, yeah. I feel like it was very much a sink or swim environment, and I did voluntarily sink. <laughs> right. You chose out of the... Yeah, because you've, men- you've mentioned a few times that you've done some theater, you work for an orchestra now. So yes. You, but you also do web design. So you're where, where, where do you fall as far as uh, being on this artsy kid spectrum? that you mentioned? Uh, so I do marketing for an orchestra and I used to do marketing for various like London West Endy theatre things mm-hmm. and it's because I started out doing directing and acting and writing for theatre student stuff and then realised that I wanted a career where I could go home at 5pm and watch TV and do things in the evenings and basically have a nice comfortable life. I have friends who go to drama school and I have friends who are trying to be actors and directors and I could not do what they do. Oh, wow. When they do catering and when they work at kids' parties and when they try their hardest and they keep getting rejected from things, I know I'm not that person. Right. I don't have the physical strength or the mental strength to do that. So I have taken what I suppose is a compromise. Thankfully, it's a compromise that I enjoy. I really like marketing. I really like web design. I'm lucky that I've found a part within the industry that allows me to go home at 5 p.m. Now, you understand that you are a goldmine in the <laughs> world of, of the arts because I know from, um, from my experience that uh, even on my end, I was an administrator at a, at a school for theater, mm-hmm. helping to administrate their classes. And almost everyone in the administrative side and the infrastructure side was someone like me, which was, no, I want to get on stage and this, I'm, I'm paying my rent through something I love. But the idea of someone who says, this is a compromise that I greatly enjoy. Absolutely. Any theater company views you, you're like a unicorn. <laughs> you're like a unicorn. Someone who appreciates the arts, has experienced the arts, has mm-hmm. a love and investment in the arts, mm-hmm. but wants to help in the support structure of it. So yeah, th- that is, it's very nice to hear that. But it's one thing that I've found when you go into the administrative side of the arts industry, at least in the sort of West End industry, which I was in, People don't seem to be that actively interested in theatre, at least from what I found. I was only working for commercial theatre companies, but everyone there seemed a lot more business-minded than oh, wow. they were arts-minded, to a point where, like I say, I, I, I got fired from that job because I couldn't keep up with the business side of things. Now I'm working for a charitable arts organisation and the people are a lot more artsy and a lot more creative and I have found an environment that I enjoy. But... Um, I have found that backstage, at least in the bigger commercial theatre industry, it's a lot of very business-minded people who have found theatre as a way of accessing money. Right. And this is why we wind up, and not not to criticise other artists, and I'm glad people have jobs, that this is how you wind up with so many jukebox musicals. Absolutely. And and so many things that are framed around pre-existing 
commercially successful properties, and now we include songs and dance. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I, I wouldn't want anyone to think for a second that I was disparaging business-minded people. Right. It's, a, it's a profession just like any other. Mm-hmm. It's just it's difficult when you're a kind of crossover between arts an arts, artistic person working in a business industry. There's definitely a clash of heads there. Right. This is how you wind up with New York staging the Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark musical, <laughs> which if you have not heard of it, listeners, is worth reading about. Absolutely. A legendary disaster. What can mm-hmm. only be called a legendary disaster. They involved a lot of aerial work where Spider-Man could fly around and people, I, I hate to laugh about it uh, because it's, it's human beings, but people kept getting injured. The, the rigging kept falling apart. Absolutely. And uh, I have a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine who worked on my TV show who um, has a great story about a time that he dropped acid and went and saw the Spider-Man musical. Wow. And said it was one of the greatest nights of his life. Yeah, apparently... Well, they made a guest appearance on, I believe, the David Letterman show, didn't they? The Green Goblin sung oh, that a song. Makes sense. I think that that sounds correct. I have a vague memory of this. That yeah. is absolutely worth <laughs> checking out. I believe it's on YouTube, and it is diabolical to see the Green Goblin dancing with David Letterman. Oh God! Why did they think? How? That's a, just as a, as a tangent. How do they not under? They must know. They must know that when you take that to David Letterman, he's going to be laughing at it the whole time. Absolutely. But they have to sell the tickets, so I guess they got to go do it. Oh, yes, it's just the idea of a dancing green... Like, the Green Goblin is like a villain. He's a menacing, insane person. He's wearing, like, a full metal green bodysuit. Yes. And he's dancing. Yes. And it's just, like, there's no way to make that seem villainous. If someone could, they'd be the greatest theatre director of all time. Yeah. But there's... There must have been some stage very early on where they saw the Green Goblin dancing and they were like, this isn't what we thought it should be. Yeah, for anyone unacquainted, the Green Goblin's backstory is that he is a a ruthless businessman who's very Mm business-minded, who has secretly lost his mind and funnels all of his insanity into a multiple personality known as the Green Goblin, and he throws bombs shaped like pumpkins at Spider-Man. Yeah. Not exactly a thing that makes you want to break out in a dance number. Exactly. Sometimes he does just have to boogie, though. That's an important part of his backstory. It's so funny to me. It seems like, if I I don't want to overanalyze, but it seems like so much of your life is like finding the balance between, like you said, the business and the art. Now you're living in Pool, which seems like it's halfway between London and a goat farm. It seems like so much of it is like adjusting the dials on where you want to land. It is very much me being too non-committal. And I guess that could feed back into what we were talking about earlier. But I have always... It's a problem that I've noticed recently that I always want the middle ground of the best things. Like, I want the comfort of a normal existence, but I also want to work in the theatre where that is actively rooted against. Right. And, like, I want a relationship that's fun and exciting, but I don't want it with someone who's fun or exciting. And, like, it's just wanting the best (laughs) of both worlds and being unable to make any kind of a compromise. And that leads some people to being very ruthless. And it just leads to me being like, I'll take whatever, that's fine, as long as I don't, I'm not actively interrupting anything. So you just roll with the punches and stay out of the way. I guess, which makes for an existence where I'm very rarely upset or disappointed. But it also, it's not, I probably should be more ambitious and I probably should be more willing to accept difficulty. Wow. What a... uh... What a thing to know about yourself. And say, is, but is this, is this, it also sounds like this is something you're not actively worried about or, or well, trying, to, trying to overcome. 
I mean, you've caught me on a very good day. I, ha- <laughs> I, definitely have, I definitely have bad days where I will be constantly stressed and feel constantly tired and hate myself. And I'll accidentally, one of the worst things is accidentally capturing yourself in the mirror from an angle you don't like. Mm, and then mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. just ruins your whole day. It's like, oh, oh wait, yeah. that's my body from that angle. Right. <laughs> Mine is usually first thing in the morning straight ahead. When I look really? in the mirror, I go, this is what I'm dealing with. And that's how I start my day. <laughs> no, straight ahead, I'm fine. It's when I accidentally see myself sideways and you see the sort of weird shape and you're like oh i look like the penguin and you're like yeah oh, that's not a good i look. just i mean i catch my forehead in a, any regular mirror and i feel like it's a fun house mirror right just my forehead alone at a, any angle mm. looks inhuman to me but this is my own issues no actually on the topic of your forehead oh thank uh, you <laughs> not right now it's important to note but a few years ago when i went to get a haircut at the barbers i used a picture of you from a few no. years ago as a as an image reference for a haircut he must have been appalled <laughs> you said he said you want me to shave your hairline to be receding more than it is he did say your hairline doesn't look like that so we can't get that quite no how one's you hairline but looks it was, like it was this. the quiff that i was interested in well, i don't have so it currently much. but yeah here's a weird thing i will say and i wonder what you think of this i have found that when i have traveled and this is a weird i don't know this is my i don't i don't know what this says i have found that when i travel to england and ireland Mm -hmm. um like last night we did a live podcast taping and we do some twitter feedback Mm -hmm. and there were a few girls flirting with me that's and i i have found i don't know if it's because uh my background is irish if that I, I have a more common look here. Mm-hmm. Maybe in America where there's like more of these like tanned Texas, <laughs> California guys or these like beefy Midwesterns of, of, of nerves of like German stock. Mm-hmm. But I found that my look plays better over here. I will say it could possibly do with the voice. You've got a very American accent and it's the very distinct accents that a lot of people tend to like, both men and women. At least I don't know if it's a global thing, but it's definitely an English oh, wow. thing. Because uh, when you say you're modeling your haircut after mine, I'm like, no one in America would ever <laughs> would ever look at what I'm working with here and go that's what I want oh well perhaps perhaps I'm an oddity I don't I, I will say I haven't seen legions of people marching in with Chris Gefford that's fair and, and to barber, be, it all loops around right because it, it it all comes back to England because mine is just a low-grade Morrissey ripoff anyway <laughs> absolutely yeah. which we shouldn't even get into with <laughs> this guy these days oh gosh yes Morrissey is somewhat problematic oh, which is- he's tricky to deal with yes tricky to deal with is a very light way of putting oh right now, oh, oh now i mm. very quaint image we have a uh, a man pedaling by in some sort of rented bike that has a box on the front with his two adorable children yes i can't imagine what that box is for except children yeah that's a children box that's a bike with a box for children mounted on the front which sounds a lot more sinister mm. than what we're looking at i do want to say for any foreign listeners I, that's the first time i've ever seen that that's not really? a, that's not a common occurrence a man with a, some babies in a carriage now that is to you have to imagine for me someone i think this is my third time in london mm-hmm. spread out over 10 years mm-hmm. i have to assume that that's a very london thing another london thing i've been mentioning this in every show i do apologies for anyone who's already heard me talking about this i saw fox walking down the sidewalk and i was baffled by that (laughs) that is still a magical sight magical yes because it's not something we see regularly enough to be it's not like a pigeon it's not like we'll see them every now and again but if you're walking late at night and you'll see a fox it's still nice to sort of take in my wife and i saw fox carrying a piece of fruit in its mouth and we thought we were hallucinating (laughs) that was a completely foreign experience. I take it you don't have that experience in, in New York or no. Los Angeles? The idea of a fox. Although I know in Los Angeles they have coyotes mm. that just appear sometimes and everybody freaks out. But yeah, we don't, I guess we have raccoons in New York. That would probably be our equivalent of yeah. an animal you see sometimes where we wouldn't freak out if we saw it. Yeah. 
I once saw a possum walking down a sidewalk, and it was the most grotesque animal I've ever seen in person. Oh, is that the one that has weird human hands, or am I thinking of a raccoon? Human hands? A ra- I think a raccoon has more human-like hands. A yeah. possum? Not hu- I wouldn't say human hands, but yeah, little... <laughs> no, they're not like little, They can grab things with their hand. They can lift a lid off a garbage can. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is disturbing. It is. It, it means is. they can open a door, and that's... They can open a door. That's yeah. scary. Yeah. And probably lift a window if they really saw a piece of food in there that they wanted. Yeah, the Scottish equivalent, by the way, and I know this happens in some rural place in America, of that is deer, which it's, a, it's great to see a deer, and you do see them wandering around mm-hmm. quite regularly, at least in the sort of semi-rural areas of Scotland, you'll see a deer. We see deer quite often in the northeast of America. Absolutely. You yeah. have to be careful when you're driving, because they'll jump in front of your car. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. always beautiful. And then oh, the, yeah. the very Scottish equivalent is just roaming herds of sheep, just now, stopping in the road. In Edinburgh, there's also that type of cattle. Mm-hmm. There's like a big, there's a park that has some sort of free-roaming, very hairy cattle. Highland cows. Highland cows. Which I did used to have on my farm briefly before you I became did. exclusively a goat farm. Now, yes. my wife, when we were in Edinburgh, my wife was hiking. I did not because I'm not fun. Mm-hmm. I did not go along on the hike because I'm not a fun human. Absolutely. But she was hiking through a park, and there were signs that said, if you see Highland cattle, it's normal. They live within this park. Please just don't bother them. Yeah. Um, they will leave you alone and they're docile, but if you bother them they can be violent. Absolutely. And she immediately saw a tourist who was standing maybe 18 inches away from one while the person's partner took a picture. And my wife just watched this animal that she said had rather large horns Mm -hmm. get angrier and angrier. And my wife had to walk away because it was stressing her out so much. Watching someone basically harass an animal that every posted sign said, this animal will attack you if you bother it. Just don't bother it. It is strange how some people are totally unempathetic towards animals in that way. Mm-hmm. Not even in a way that's necessarily open cruelty, because there are obviously some people who are very cruel to their yes. pets, things like that. Yes. But people who just have a blatant disregard for animal existence. Like, I eat meat, so I am coming from a bit of an unearned soapbox, but like, it does bother me when I see people just openly just chasing after geese is something yeah. I will see especially in just tormenting an animal for their own amusement exactly and it's something that it, it does it's very confusing to me especially growing up with animals mm. it yes. must be because uh, I have to say even as someone I don't have I, I stopped eating meat largely for health reasons mm-hmm. um, my wife I think more for moral reasons um, but I will say that when people actually raise meat and in a non-commercial way where it's not like a slaughter farm. I actually respect it more because at least they understand like the cycle of life and the consequences of of all of it and how it's a system where yeah everyone contributes and the animals contribute their own things and that's a little bit more honored. I yeah. respect it a little more. Yeah, we would we would kill our pigs and our sheep and our cows and we would eat them and that was we raised them from children or whatever the animal equivalent would be um, we would have them to eat and then that felt a lot more honest than buying meat from a shop just yeah. because we knew where it came from we knew it had a fairly decent life yeah and it, it just felt a lot more moral in that way um, now now my dad is vegan uh, and all his new family are vegan which makes Christmas very difficult I don't oh, know how you wow. deal with Christmas but because obviously you're vegetarian yeah, I'm a pescatarian, pescatarian so I can still eat fish my right. wife is a vegetarian but it's nice I mean you know mostly I just follow my wife's lead like right. she uh, she's a very healthy person and she's a uh, she, she's she's not going to sit around and have a bad Christmas, so she no. takes care. She takes care of business, oh, as they say. So you have a, so your you, your parents separated then. Yeah, my parents separated in 2010, and then my mother got cancer. I believe. I believe it was diagnosed maybe around three months after that. So oh, she didn't wow. have a fantastic 2010. Oh wow! And then during my university years, I went back and visited her quite regularly because she was on her own on this farm around 50 miles from anybody. So I so would. So she was dealing with an illness. 
Yes. And isolated on a farm surrounded by, by goats. Absolutely. Yeah. So she had a very difficult last four or five years. I tried to visit her as much as I could. Wow. And you would never notice. She was amazing. She was an amazing woman to be around. She was absolutely fantastic. She would go and work with these animals every day, this hard physical labor that I couldn't do now as a fit and healthy 25-year-old. She did as like a 57-year-old woman with advanced stage breast cancer. Wow. She was a hugely strong woman. Massive. Badass. Yeah absolute badass fantastically influential and now she's passed away and it's it took me a good couple of years to kind of deal with that and i'm yeah. sort of getting to a point now thanks to bits and bobs of counseling bits and bobs of talking to friends where right. i can but she was the only person that i felt at least in my family that i was really close to right so i have sort of been floundering a little bit but i'm recovering now yeah well that's uh, i'm i'm very sorry to hear that are you yeah. cl- are you close with your dad at all now only very recently he very recently got remarried and literally at his wedding we had our first close conversation in about seven years wow and that's it was trippy it was a beautiful conversation and it was at like this lovely like highland dance wedding with all these beautiful fairy lights in a little village hall it felt very emotional and wow. we had this very long chat and it wasn't particularly about emotional things it was just about my career and his retirement and things but it was very interesting to have a conversation with someone, notice you're having an intimate conversation and realize, oh, wait, this is my dad. I should have been having these all the time. Yeah. And I see these yeah. people with very close family connections. And I'm like, wow, so you can just have those conversations at any point. And it is something I feel very jealous about when I see these families who can just talk to their parents about anything they feel emotionally strongly about because I never do that. Yeah. And yeah, I, whenever I see someone who has a close family relationship, I'm always like, you don't know how lucky you are to have that. Yeah. Because mine isn't particularly dramatic. It's not like my father was ever difficult or abusive or anything like that. We just weren't close. Right. But now it's got to a point where it's kind of too late to establish that closeness, or at least it feels that way. Or, and, and at the very least, it sounds like the window, of, the window of when you were disconnected from him is a window that traditionally is when a father and son, that's when a son is growing into being a grown-up and a father Absolutely. is... A lot of those experiences are ones that are those sort of like life markers that a father and a son are going to be more involved with each other in. Absolutely. Yeah, we were very sep- we were very separated during when my parents were getting a divorce because basically I took my mom's side because both my parents were very secretive and they didn't really tell us what was going on. So we just kind of had to assume me and my brother from context clues and we kind of sided with my mother on that so we saw our father a lot less. Wow. And that meant that that connection was kind of semi-severed or at least only established in a very non-literal way it was very much talking about what films we'd seen once a month right nothing emotional so then when my mother passed away i suddenly had no parental connection that was close and that's how it was up until literally a few months ago now thankfully i'm talking to my father a little more that's good yeah that's good i mean that for as much as that that uh disconnection of those years is is really such a regret and a shame it also feels like that particular conversation you had will now be That'll be a memory you get to have for your whole life. Absolutely. That yeah. sounds like it was really beautiful. Very, very beautiful memory. And yeah, it's just, it's just establishing that closeness. I wish I'd done it when I had the chance. You know? Do you think, and now I'm just playing arm, armchair psychologist, which yeah. I, I don't like to do, but do you feel like as, as, far as, uh, as far as your own relationships, do you feel like your, your parental experience is uh, some of why you uh, 
have been unable to invest in some of these things you've mentioned? Very possibly, yeah. It's definitely, I am very aware of how difficult I find to be open and honest with people. Like, I can only do this now because of the anonymity of it. I plan on telling literally no one that I was on this podcast. <laughs> so apologies for the lack of publicity. But <laughs> I can only do this from a very established point of this is anonymous. I've intentionally given very few details about myself. Right. In about 20 minutes, you're just going to sprint that way Absolutely. and never have to think about this again. Oh, blimey. Do we still have 20 minutes? 20 minutes. He just said, oh, blimey, and I didn't even blink. Well, I've blinked now, and I've broken up the momentum, so we might as well do our ads. You guys, it really does help the show so much when you use those promo codes, so listen to the ads. Maybe the things in there are things that could be uh, useful in your life. Use the promo codes if that's the case. What kind of socks am I wearing right now? I don't even need to take off my shoes to check, because if my feet are feeling this comfortable, you know I'm wearing Bombas, baby. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet with an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness. Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas' stay-up technology ensures your stock stay ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark and the super soft cotton material. You're never going to want to take these things off. I'm telling you, I'm addicted to Bombas. You know who loves Bombas even more than me? It's my wife. She flips out. She, she, the only things she reacts to, golden raisins and Bombas socks drive her nuts like catnip with a cat. It's insane. She loves Bombas socks so much. I bought her Bombas for our anniversary this year. Go to bombas.com slash stories. Use the code stories for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash stories. Code is stories. You get 20% off your first order. You're going to love them. Get them as a gift. It's a really great product. You're going to flip out. Let's get back to the convo. As you heard, 20 minutes left. He sounded like he had a lot more to say. Sense of urgency in there. Let's get back to it. In about 20 minutes, you're just going to sprint that way Absolutely. and never have to think about this again. Oh, blimey. Do we still have 20 minutes? 20 minutes, yes. That's, no, that's a good thing. I was worried that we were at like minute 57, so that's why I was saying everything <laughs> in very small snippets. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, because I'm going to get to the middle of like an emotional sentence and the buzzer's going to go. No, it's, it is something that um, I do intentionally try now to be more open and emotionally honest with people, specifically to spite that kind of nature in myself. Right. Right, you got to um, start pushing back against that yeah, right away, yeah. I, I do have a difficult thing where I, I could throw a party and invite people and have like a fairly big party. I have a lot of friends, but I, at the same time, I could go seven days without checking my phone and come back to like one or two messages. Oh, wow. I have a lot of friends, but not a lot of close friends, yeah. which is, I think, potentially because of that emotional disconnect where... In making those friendships, I intentionally was very distant. Yeah. And now you cannot establish that closeness after you've been friends with someone for a while. You can't suddenly go, okay, so now we're the kind of friends who have this kind of a conversation. Yeah. So then when you're meeting new people, you're coming from it with that baggage of those previous emotional experiences. So you kind of do your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of float through this world. Exactly. And it's something that I was totally fine with up until maybe around a year ago, or maybe even as recently as when I lost this big job, because I felt like my entire life was building towards getting a very illustrious job at like West End Theatre. And then I totally messed up that job and got fired. And I was like, okay, so that was my big shot that I've now ruined. 
but that was sort of what I was putting all my eggs in the basket of having no sort of solid relationships to lean back on no solid friendships to fall back on and no sort of close familial connection and so now I'm kind of doing the legwork of trying to establish these close relationships spending more time with my friends trying to have emotional conversations with my father which are very awkward and trying to establish myself in this new job doing better doing trying as hard as I can staying an hour after work coming in an hour early trying to establish this job as a more permanent thing that I'm committing to and it's very difficult to take those big first steps into committing to things even if they're things as small as like just getting out of bed and going to work and working really hard that day every single day it feels very strange to be doing that for the first time because yeah it's just hard to get used to yeah it is yeah we're actually very similar i would say that i historically as well have have uh tons of acquaintances mm-hmm. but very like you, very few people i have a very very tight circle of people who i think i would actually open up to absolutely or who check in on me and um, yeah, i feel like the the important thing isn't when you have a very bad emotional experience and talk to someone because i have a few friends i can do that with it's just when you're having a mundanely bad day yeah and you can't i don't have anyone that i can really go oh i'm just having a really bad day today if we talked about it i wouldn't have that much interesting to say yeah but i'm just i am feeling bad and i need to talk to someone and I don't know if you feel the same way, but there's not that many people who I feel like I can rely on for that kind of mundane sympathy. It is true. I mean, being married means, you know, I think it's funny because I, I actually, even having my wife who, who uh, is, we are attached at the hip. Like, she's, uh, you know, fiercely protective of me and, and I of her. She even sometimes has to force me. She will say, I can, I can see so clearly that, that something's going on. Mm-hmm. And I can see you trying to just shoulder through it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I do not understand why you won't just slow down for a minute and let me know. So, and that's someone who I live in a house with and sleep right. in a bed with and who yeah. I have that person in my life. And even then, I still find it very difficult at times Absolutely. to open up. And it's so beautiful that you have that person. And I'm very envious of that, just being completely openly honest. Like, I'm very envious of you having that person. And that must be a huge emotional assist to you to have that. Oh, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, even even in prior relationships, I would say, you know, I've had, you know, being older when, I think I was 32 when I got engaged, mm-hmm. right? Thir- no, 33? Right. No, wait. How old was I when I got engaged? Must have been 30, yeah, 33, 34, a, a little bit on the older side. Like, I had had, re- I had, had a relationship that was on, off and on for eight years with one person. Right. I'd had, you know, I'd dated a, people for a week. I'd had every type of... Uh, relationship, and I don't think I'd ever really had that. And even being married for four years, I still have to, still have to remind myself to be willing mm. to uh, let the guard down. Absolutely. Uh, even on the mundane things, like you said, it's weird. It is weird that letting the guard down about mundane things is often harder than the, the disastrous things. Absolutely, because you feel egotistical and you feel narcissistic, and you don't feel like it's earned. Like, when I lost my job, there was a whole bunch of people I felt like I could talk to because they would immediately register that emotional response that my friend has lost their job, I need to sympathize with them. But you feel a lot more narcissistic going, I just want some attention. Yeah. I just am not having a good day and want some attention, and that's difficult. Yeah. 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 I cooked breakfast this morning, and I screwed up and ruined a pan, and I feel like an idiot. And for some reason, it has shaken me up, and I can't move on. Mm -hmm. And I'm this half combination of uh, angry and sad, and I don't know why. Mm Mm-hmm. 
nobody really wants to slow down and hear about that exactly as yeah. often so I actually you said you got married when you were 32 33 yeah. I got let's see we started dating when I was 32 we got right. engaged when I was 33 we got married when I was 34 right see that's quite late in terms of what mm-hmm. I've heard from other people yeah. and I'm just wondering if there was that time basically similar to what I'm going through but maybe a little later where you do feel maybe in your late 20s that you're not going to find that and you're oh. that you're that, be, that you've sort of screwed up your emotional history to a point where you're not going to find that kind of connection I would say that most of my dating life was an existential nightmare absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. you're not alone in this you're not alone in this yeah. even in the midst of that eight year relationship um, myself is, there's no way she would listen to this I don't think. Right. But my, it, I was in a relationship for eight years where I realized it was progressively making my self-esteem lower right. to be in the relationship because it had problems that we weren't addressing and we weren't fixing. And it was making me question so many things about myself that even having an eight-year-long relationship, which is longer than the relationship I currently have with the person I've been married to, yeah. eight years in, I felt so emotionally untethered and unsafe and uh, just assumed, okay, there's just something off about me where even having this long relationship I can't figure out how to be happy or feel stable in this side of things so always I would say I always felt that way there were very few brief flashes of times where I felt like okay I can see uh I can see the clouds parting and the possibility for this it was like I said really only only when I met my wife did I realize like oh this is a far less melodramatic like finding this comfort and finding this stability and finding this foundation that I've always heard about is possible. I ha- I've, I've had kind of begrudgingly grown to assume that it wasn't. And then finding it, I'm like, oh, and it's actually like much less melodramatic than I thought it would be. And it's much more just like, oh, right. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And that feels really good. Mm-hmm. It just feels really good to wind up in a relationship where it's like, this makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Okay. I feel this, uh, I can let out my breath. Nice. Mm. And was there like a specific moment? Is there a palpable moment where you had that thought or was it a gradual thing? I will say that with her, on our second date, I realized, oh, I'm wow. in love with her. That's very I'm in love young. with this person. Yeah. And she has a similar thing where she, when we had started dating, she, uh, she said that right around the same time, she said to her roommate, because I was also... It, it, you know, anyone who followed my work back then would know I was a sort of a madman. Back, then. I, I, I would kind of go through these waves of uh, of, of mental uncertainty and and uh, really living the artist's life of, of instability. And she was like, it, "It seems like such a bad idea." Mm-hmm. And we worked together on the TV show, and she's like, "It could mess up a lot of things and be a real headache." But she goes, "I also just have a feeling I might marry him, so maybe I should go for it." So we both kind of just knew right away. Wow, that's that's very strange to think because as a concept it sounds very unlikely as a concept it it sounds bafflingly unlikely yeah but yeah it happens so often that you just have to assume that that it just does occur and i gotta say this is weird to say to a stranger who i'm sitting on a bench with across from some ducks but you all you seem like such a person who's uh already at the age of 25 put so much thought into yourself and your uh your habits and your and your past and i would have to imagine that uh that's going to have a lot of appeal to people you date as that becomes more and more of a process moving forward. I'll also say too, I look back and realize that everybody fears getting older, mm-hmm. but as I've gotten older and maybe it is cause I'm an introvert or cause I was like an artsy kid or uncomfortable. And it sounds like we share some of those things. Like mm-hmm. 
I feel like the older I get, the more my life rules. Like my really? 20, when the, everybody said my 20s are supposed to be when you're having fun. I'm like, I spent my whole 20s feeling lonely and stressed. My Absolutely. 30s have ruled. My 30s have been all, I'm like losing more and more hair and I'm about to turn 40 in a couple of years, but I'm like, bring on the 40s because if the 30s were this much better than the 20s, Absolutely. I want to be 70. What's that going to be like? It just keeps getting better. Actually, that reminds me of the conversation I had with my dad at his wedding, because he had his wedding on the same day that he retired. So he just turned 65? Wow. Maybe 60. 60, I think. Um, Yeah, 60. And he got married and retired the same day. And we had this beautiful Scottish dance in a little village hall. And I talked to him. And he had been an artist when he was in his teens and his 20s. And he stopped to become a teacher. And I said, like, do you regret stopping being an artist? And he said, no, because right now, when I'm 60 years old, is the happiest I've ever been. Because I worked in my 20s and my 30s. And I got through the hard stuff. And then I got into a point of comfort. And now I can enjoy that. And it's kind of been an upward slide of happiness because he put the work in when he was younger. And he sort of accepted that that he didn't peak when people are assumed to peak in their 20s. He is at his happiest now when he's 60 years old. And our natural fear of death makes us assume that when we're 60, all we're going to be doing is frantically thinking about how we're going to die. But he has... He's not even considering that at all because he's just got married. He's just retired. He's going to go on a holiday to Italy. And that's what he's thinking on a day-to-day basis. And he's just unstoppably happy. So that's very interesting to see that from a sort of middle ground perspective of your mid-30s as being better than your 20s. I mean, hopefully when you're 60, and you'll, be, you'll be even happier. I'll be, I'll be giving inspirational speeches just like your dad did. Absolutely. And I hope, just like, I hope just like your dad that you find your life to be an upward slide of happiness. Exactly. I think that's a really beautiful phrase. <laughs> and yeah, I do feel like in, in his 40s when, and his 50s when my parents were getting divorced, he was very difficult and very aggressive and very loud. And now he is none of those things and he is a delightful person to be around. And it is one of those things where he has changed over the course of 10, 15 years to become an entirely different person. And when you talk to a 45-year-old, you don't expect them to be entirely different when they're 60, but they can be, just as a 25-year-old can be entirely different when they're 40. You're a very thoughtful person. It's because I don't have many close friends, so I have a lot of time to think. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. We have seven minutes and 45 seconds left. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, this has really flown by. What I am a little panicked about is I have a physical thing where I touch my hand to my chest and it's literally right where my microphone is. So I do hope there hasn't been any mic issues. Oh, no, Jared, 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 who I have to say, it's funny, people keep looking by and having slight confusion because we have these large puffy mics, but I've also realized, too, it is also because a man with giant headphones is squatting behind us. Absolutely. In a way that does look maybe slightly sinister but that being said Jared's giving the thumbs up that there have been no mic issues right oh actually because I'm talking to an American I would like to ask a question about American culture which is how you deal with because the most baffling thing to a a British person about Americans at least in my perspective is the level of patriotism yes which is always something I find very confusing and it peaks with people saluting the flag and singing the national anthem like as kids in the morning yeah how did you how do you feel about that as an American person just in general like does that seem weird to you it's funny because it's funny because as I've traveled more internationally I've heard this Mm -hmm. and I do understand it very much and I will say it's funny because I feel like being a New Yorker and being an artist and being a liberal Mm -hmm. I'm probably more than I should also be clear too we have a uh, mom taking pictures of her kid on a bridge and who am I to criticize that although 
I'm sure Jared's furious. It's <laughs> something of a sound issue. Um, I feel like as all those things, I'm probably less into patriotism and roll my eyes at it more than most Americans. Absolutely. But then I also realize that probably to most people from other areas of the world, I am still more patriotic than almost anyone. That's what I'm thinking. Because, yeah, I assume, like, red state Republicans will be very patriotic. But even when I do see, like, left-wing stuff, there doesn't seem to be... There doesn't seem to be an active anti-patriotism. And at least there's still a level of sublimated patriotism where you're like, you do still love the country in general. Whereas when I speak to a British person about how they feel about Britain, there's no kind of remarking on it as a country at all. There's no kind of like, I'm proud of Britain. That would seem a very cliched, strange thing to say. Yeah, no, there is a real Americanism. I mean, I think so much of it roots in the fact that we still... I think one thing that's become very clear about America is that we're still basking in this uh, glow of our participation in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. I think that still very much informs, you know, the greatest generation, the fact that I think in that world, in that war, we did very much, you know, there were, if you read a lot about the actual history, we dodged it for a long time and didn't participate and Mm -hmm. certainly left you guys out to let you hang it out to dry a little longer than, than anyone would advise. But we did at the end of the day kind of show up on two fronts and, but then, you know, I think a lot of Americans still buy into that and ignore Vietnam and ignore mm-hmm. the Middle East and ignore that a lot of it hasn't gone in that direction and it hasn't been um, necessarily above board or 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 fit. Absolutely. You know, a uh, a romantic vision in any way. And there, there's the thing that baffles me is like, you know, that there is a thing in the American press where the American press is not allowed to print photos of caskets of soldiers anymore because. Wow. Um, it would create so much anti-war sentiment. That's been since George W. Bush and Obama did not undo that. And there's things like that where I'm like, you know, and there's so much right now about athletes kneeling during the the national anthem. And Mm -hmm. people don't realize, you know, I forget if it was 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I think it was, they didn't even sing the national anthem before football games. And now we act like it's this big tradition that's being dishonored. It's a very tricky thing. I think uh, it is tough. But, you know, the thing that baffles me the most as an American is that the people who say you respect the flag, you need to respect the flag culturally the most, are also the ones who are probably most prone to wear a bathing suit that is the American flag bikini right. or, or shorts or t-shirt or have an American flag bandana, which doesn't come off to me as like a respectful look of the flag being honored. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are regions of the country that claim that they are the most American and patriotic in the sense you're talking about. Mm-hmm who are also the same region of the country that once tried to actually separate from the rest of America, which is by definition the least patriotic, most traitorous thing you can do. So it is a very, very strange thing, even from the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I've traveled more and more, I realized that, you know, a lot of countries, the idea that you would like stand up in the morning in school and, and salute the flag seems like... Orwellian. Yes, yeah, it seems it seems like manipulative and it seems to be forcing an attitude on people that they might not want. I've also heard all these rumors that I believe are true from what I've researched that the American military actually funds certain movies, that they will increase the budget of certain movies if the movies, you know, make the military look good or increase patriotism. So there's actually actively money being spent yeah. to kind of put patriotism into popular culture in a way to keep it going. So... You know, it's sad to say and scary to say, but there's some level to which we're probably being, you know, I think there is a lot of pride in our country in a way that's really beautiful. There's also some ways in which we're probably being brainwashed. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things go hand in hand. It's tough. It's tough to travel internationally right now and to hear, you know, 
I remember the first time I came to England was when George W. Bush was in office, and now being here when Trump's in office, it's you kind of are constantly braced for people to hear your accent and, and sort of immediately get mad at you. And yeah. uh, I think a lot of the... Uh, similarly, a lot of the people who are maybe the most patriotic are the ones who are least likely to travel abroad, which, again, I don't, I don't judge that. I, I don't promote that as a sense of ignorance because I also think America's so large. You could travel within America and you spend your whole life vacationing and holidaying within America and see so many different things, and that's beautiful, and I really love it. I've driven cross-country... I've driven from one end of America to the other six times, three times by myself. So that's a 3,000-mile trip just in America. And uh, it's a very, I don't know, it's a very complicated thing. But I guess my short answer is I'm as confused about it as you are. Right. The more I realize that that's not the world standard, the more I realize, like, oh, we are, we are caught up in some things that are, uh, y- you almost hate to say it because it's a cliche response, but it's like, you know who else was so obsessed with their flag was like 40s era Germans. Like they <laughs> yeah. were obsessed with the flag too. And there's and that was state mandated. They would state, get yeah <laughs> yeah. And there, there there is some level to this of when the president says you you have to when the president of the United States himself says that a football player trying to bring att- attention to a social issue should leave the country if he won't stand for the national anthem. It's hard not to remember that the times in life when presidents and heads of state have said that has actually turned very quickly towards fascism. Exactly. And a lot of people say that might be too simplistic an analogy, but I just think that's because it's simple. I think that is, it's, it's a case of a very simple kind of bludgeoning of a certain kind of viewpoint. And it isn't necessarily complicated in this situation. So, like, yeah, it's just a case of looking at this thing and saying, sometimes we have to take a step back and say, maybe this is as simple a comparison to make to 1940s, you know? I think so. And I think uh, the one thing that I really agree with is that being able to say that you don't love a thing about America should be at the roots of what being an American is. Mm -hmm. And for the president himself to tweet out and say otherwise, I think is really dangerous. And uh, I'm I'm not nervous to say it if people want to stop listening. I think it's really vile. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm totally okay saying that. Hey, on that very sad note, the timer's going off. Thank you for doing this. I hope it wasn't too painful. No, not at all. It was very nice to sort of be a bit open, knowing that no one I know will have to hear it. Yeah, I hope (laughs) maybe... Unless they do listen to this, in which case... I hope it was a really painless experience that maybe helps lead to some more conversations like that moving forward. Hopefully so. And thank you so much for being me. absolutely. Thanks for being so honest and open and... I'm very jealous of your Marvel Comics pack. <laughs> Thank you very before. much. Do you read DC as well, or? Uh, no, I'm strictly Marvel and occasionally like Brian O'Malley. Like there you go. Yeah, the more independent-minded stuff. Exactly. There you go. Oof. Right. All right. Standing up off a bench is hard for a 38-year-old man. It's half 25 sometimes. An hour. There we go. Thank you again. No problem. Doing though. this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Such a joy. You have a great weekend. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Cheers. Thanks. I still can't... The cheers... I can't bring myself to say cheers, Jared. I can't... I always say thank you. Yeah, cheers. can't do that either. It's a sitcom to me. Thank you so much to our participant. It was really cool meeting. I felt like we would have been pals in real life. And uh, hopefully, through random chance, we cross paths again someday who knows who knows how this weird world works but thank you for coming out to that park and taking time out of your day to fill us in on who you are what you're thinking about thanks to jared for crossing a literal ocean 
a literal ocean to come hang out and talk to uh, people. It's, it's a fun time. Shared an Airbnb, and uh, Jared dropped his Mac Weldon one before, and I brought him back to America. So I said, "Can't nobody, uh, can't you can't be ditching Mac Weldon's high grade stuff." Sorry, I just uh, aired that out of the world, Jared. Uh, we're exchanging very uncomfortable eye contact right now. Thank you to Harry Nelson for all your help with the show. Thank you to Justin Linville for all your help in my life. Thank you to Shell Shag for the music. Again, I'm going out on the road all the time, and I got a whole bunch of dates coming up in the next week. So chrisgeth.com is the website where you can go get tickets and see those dates. Thank you guys most of all for listening. Hey, if you like the show, you go on Apple Podcasts. You rate, you review, subscribe. It really helps when you do. That's all the business. We'll see you next time on Beautiful Anonymous. You never know how these conversations turn out on Beautiful Anonymous, okay? We all know that. But I can give you a little taste of what the next episode's going to be. But my mom would always just say, oh, you're too hard on yourself. She called it vanity insanity and still does to this day. She says I have vanity insanity. But um, later I learned that it's actually called body dysmorphic disorder. Oh, wow. And I didn't know that I had that, like, my whole life. Like, I, I would rant to people about stuff and they'd just say, oh, you're just crazy. It's just in your head and... Um, you're, you're, you're fine, you look fine, and it was, it's, it's, yeah, body dysmorphic disorder. So I have heard of this. I, yeah. My very vague, basic understanding is that this is a condition where when you look in a mirror, you might be perceiving things about yourself that other people from the outside looking in would say are not the total reality. Is that the truth of it? next time on Beautiful Anonymous.